Welcome back to the Queer Circle, where queer healers step up to the mic to share their stories and what they would tell their younger self. Today's guest is Dr. Max Pearl. Max is a black trans man in Sonoma County, California. Max has a PhD in neuroscience and a certificate of theological studies, as well as studied various embodiment modalities. He is the creator of Trans Resilience, which provides coaching, workshops, and online classes to help trans and gender expansive people learn to love themselves, their bodies, navigate the transition process, navigate relationships, and live their best lives. Trans Resilience uses mindfulness and compassion cultivating tools and practices which bring to bear emerging understandings of how our nervous systems work. Welcome to the Queer Circle, Max. I was born in New York, uh, in Manhattan, at a small hospital in Harlem called Flower Fifth Avenue, which no longer exists. My mother had uh, had come up here um, to New York, there to New York from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. She and her mother and her grandmother moved together as part of the Great Migration, which is something I learned about later in life. My father was the son of immigrants from the Caribbean, and uh, they had come you know, looking for a better life. They Both of his parents were domestics, uh, did domestic work, and my mother was the daughter of educated folks, preachers and teachers from the South. Um, not well off, but had educational privilege. Um, my dad was the first of his family to go to college, and he was the first to go to law school. And... So there were real differences in their backgrounds, um, but I think they found in each other ambition and um, a desire to to move beyond the constraints of their lives as black people in the U.S. in the 50s. So I was their, their only child, um, and they probably didn't really want children. Um, so that was a challenge at times, I think, um, for me. I didn't always feel like I was entirely wanted. And when I was got a little bit older um, from being, you know, sort of my earliest memories of, of my life as a child were very solitary ones. I was alone a lot. Um, and so I learned how to, entertain myself a lot, which, you know, has, is a double-edged sword for sure. And I think the biggest memory of mine in terms of feeling different was my mother loved to dress me up. Uh, she was, she's, she, she's formal. She's a formal person and likes formal clothing. And enjoys that sort of formality of of being as a way of being 
and and so she liked to dress me up in formal girls things patent leather shoes you know lace pretty white dresses and i hated everything about that i and my mother told me relatively recently she said that you know um that that she had to resort to the least frilly girls clothing she could find um and the truth is i hated girls clothing of all sorts um and I think that was the first, my first memory of that feeling different, of feeling like I didn't sort of want this attire that was being placed upon my body. Um, it didn't feel right. I didn't like it. Um, and since I was alone a lot, I didn't really have a lot of sort of interactions with, I had some interactions with kids at school, and certainly, but I didn't have like a, sort of a close group of friends that I hung out with. And so I didn't really have a lot of, or I didn't have any siblings too. So I didn't have a lot of sort of gender role stuff as a kid to think about or to um, sort of in, be in reaction to, except for the clothing. And, and hair was another one that um, doing my hair was a super important thing. Every, I remember if it was every week, but regularly I'd go to the, we, my mother would take me to the hairdresser and I'd get my hair straightened and curled and I didn't like anything about that either. And, and so it was the stuff that was on my body that was really um, the things that I feel like I rebelled against the most. Um, and I found my solace mostly in nature. Um, my parents sent me to camp every summer um, for the whole summer from what started from when I was six, uh, five, five or six up until I was 15 and usually in New England. Um, and, you know, camps always had lots of woods and a lake and, you know, and so I, I really found my refuge um, during those summers <clears throat> in nature and in doing things in nature, which really has carried me um, to the present time. My Aunt Dorothy was, um, she was my father's sister, um, and she never married. Uh, and, and you know, I mean, I, it's impossible to know whether she was queer or not. You know, it's, it, it's not something we ever got to talk about. She died when I was 25. Uh, but she always was the one person in my family who I felt understood me and saw me for who I was. And... You know, I there's a story that I've that I tell about how um, my mother had I, I bought me some I don't remember what kind of shoes um, you know nice sort of fancyish girls or women's shoes I, I was I was probably a young maybe a preteen um, and yeah I was a preteen thirteen twelve thirteen and I told my aunt about it and she took me shopping and got me these like these chukka boots, you know, these sort of like, you know, um, boys boots that I 
loved so much and I wore them like until like my toes were like sticking out of the of the front um, because it was sort of um, the symbol of her really understanding who I was and seeing me for who I was and being willing to um, accept me and not only that, but really support me um, fully. I mean, and this is also the mid seventies, early to mid early seventies. So it's, it's not a simple thing to, to do that in that at that time. So um, that was really special to me. Well, I guess I would start with, um, I guess I'll start with coming out because as a lesbian, because that's sort of an interesting moment, especially in retrospect for me. Um, I, I, I always, I mean, I, I always knew I didn't, when I looked at my friends in heterosexual, you know, relationships, I knew that was never right for me. And I never, um, I never could see myself relating to men in the way that women relate to men. It just never made sense to me. And so, but I didn't have language for my own gender. I sort of accepted that I was what I was as a woman. And so, and I didn't really have a way of thinking about that differently. And so what made sense to me then was to say, oh, well, that must mean I'm a lesbian. And it was, it was sort of like, okay, you know, but it didn't, it sort of fit. It wasn't like a, oh yes, you know, it was a okay sort of feeling. It was like, it sort of made sense, but it sort of didn't make sense, but it was the best I could find at the time. And, and so I started on that journey of coming out and sort of discovering what it was like to be a lesbian in the world and, but still feeling a little bit like, mm, okay, this doesn't, um, this doesn't quite fit. This doesn't feel exactly like home, but it's close enough. Um, and, and then in the, uh, mid to late eighties, I started to have panic attacks, really bad ones. Um, and which led me to therapy, um, which was a good thing. Therapy is always a good thing. Uh, and led me to really, I mean, I think when I came out in the early eighties, I actually started a journal and cause I was like, I've got to like write this down. I've got to like talk about what's happening to me and what's happening inside of me. And so it started, I think, started me on a path of internal reflection. Um, and, and, and that sort of continued as I went into therapy and, and dealt with the panic attacks and, and just with the effects of old trauma um, and healing from old trauma. And, and I feel like my healing journey um, there's a little bit of a, of, of a, of a, an aside, which is that for four years as a young adult from ages 16 to 20, I was a fundamentalist Christian. Um, my parents aren't, my parents were sort of mainline Presbyterians and then eventually not really sort of, they never really went to, they haven't been to church since I was a kid, um, since I was a teenager um, regularly. Um, and, but I, so I joined a church that a friend of mine had joined and, and it was a way for me to explain 
the world, um, a way for me to have an understanding of why the world was the way it was. And it was also a community of people who I felt accepted me fully and completely. Although not really, but sort of, you know. I mean, ultimately, they accepted this person sort of, but as I moved toward being queer, it was like, oh, no, actually not, you know. So, but there, it, the initially there felt like a full acceptance of me, which is what I needed as a 16-year-old. I needed love, I needed acceptance, and I needed a way to understand the world. And toward the end of that time, um, I, I started to think about um, what it might be like to be in ministry, um, and then realized that that was the fundamentalism itself was never gonna was I had to leave it and I did leave it, but there was a little bit of a stirring of that of that sort of healing impetus in me way back then, um, but then I sort of set it aside for quite a long time, um, and started on my own healing process because I I really I needed to do my own healing process anyway before I could do anything else. So, um, so that was starting with therapy. And then in the early nineties, um, I was introduced to Vipassana meditation, um, and started a meditation practice, which is still a mainstay and a very sort of, um, um, sort of a foundation for me in my life, um, now 30 years later. Um, and so... So those, so I think the difficulties I've faced have primarily been, um, you know, facing, facing my, facing my childhood trauma and, and facing, um, uh, the ways in which I wasn't cared for and, um, and learning to care for myself. Uh, so I think that that has led me to see how so many people aren't, you know, need to learn how to care for themselves too. Um, that's a big, a big need. So, yeah. And I was uh, in the mid uh, the mid two thousands two thousand and five. Um, I well, I had sort of moved. I left fundamentalism, and then I sort of went through. I, I started my Buddhist practice, and then I went back to um, Christianity of the very progressive, very um, liberal sort, um, and went to seminary in two thousand five um, at Pacific School of Religion, which is how I got to California. And with all in, all intentions of becoming a, a a minister in the United Church of Christ, which didn't happen for a variety of reasons, um, but it opened up for me the question about what my vocation was and what it was I was bringing to the world. In uh, the early nineties. I met a woman who, you know, was very charming and in many ways wonderful, but also herself quite damaged by her own childhood trauma. And 
and really, you know, in retrospect, I think I, 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 you know, I got into that relationship for all the right reasons, um, but I stayed for the wrong reasons. And once I, it was clear to me that she was abusive, largely emotionally, um, uh, I stayed because I didn't really feel like I deserved any better. I didn't know that I deserved any better. It was like, oh, this is just the way it's going to be because this is, you know, this is sort of what there is. Um, and, you know, and I loved her, of course. I had come to love her, but I didn't stand up to her because I didn't know how. I didn't have the self-love and the self-awareness to know that I could stand up for her, stand up for myself, stand up to her. And I didn't really have, it took me a long time to get the wherewithal to leave. Um, therapy was a big part of that. Um, but, uh, but also it was, um, when I, I, in, um, somewhere in there, um, I had been at a meditation retreat and, a uh, the teacher, one of the teachers there, his name is Eric Kolvig. He said to me that I should um, practice metta. Metta is a, a loving kindness meditation. Um, that I should practice metta every day for a year, and I was like, okay, <laughs> uh, and I did, and it radically changed my life um, because I was learning how to have loving kindness toward myself. And that meant that I, my options, my choices were much broader. It's like, oh, it's actually a good thing for me to not be in this abusive relationship. Um, and, you know, later it's, oh, it's actually a good thing for me to search for relationships that are actually where people can actually meet me and where they're not going to be critical or abusive in any way. Um, and as well as other things in my life, not just not just intimate relationships. So that was a huge thing for me um, to really kind of look back and say, oh, okay, I can see why I stayed for so long. It was because I didn't really know enough about how to love myself. And that's been, I would say, the primary thread of the healing work that I do is supporting other people in learning how to love themselves because that has been, I think, I mean, that's been the primary transformative experience in my life. It's the one that allowed me to transition um, three years ago and actually going on four. And it's, it's the one that's allowed me to have a life that is as joyful and as full of fulfillment as it is. In many ways, my worldview has changed a lot in various times in my life. I think, obviously, I don't at all have anything near the, the sort of very narrow, prescriptive, black-and-white thinking worldview that I had as a fundamentalist. I think that my worldview now is, is really... Um, I, I think... 
I think the core of it is that things are complicated, right? And that that more than one thing can be true at the same time, but that ultimately most people are good. And in fact, everybody's good, but most people act with kindness. Most people act well, you know, um, but we also act out of pain and we act out of fear. And that most of the things that plague us <clears throat> as human beings in this world is when we act out of fear and out of, um, out of pain. Um, and, and it's, it, it's difficult for me, I think, to often to square that generous worldview with in the face of some of the stuff that happens with human beings, but I still try to hold on to it. The work I do, although it's, it is, it is, a lot of it is grounded in sort of Buddhist practice, um, is also grounded in the knowledge of our brains. Um, that the thing that's cool that people are really learning is that, that certain kinds of practices change the way our minds work, our brains work. And that a lot of our habits are totally changeable and modifiable with practice. We can actually sort of groove new neural networks in our brains and change the way we think. And so it's, I think, I mean, I love the fact that there are so many different healing modalities out there. And as a scientist, I like to, you know, sort of, I also appreciate that many of them are not explainable by science, like um, a lot of Chinese medicine, for instance, and other kinds of modalities that science doesn't really explain. And I'm I'm not someone who says, well, that means they're not true. I'm someone who says, oh, we just don't understand it quite yet, um, because having experienced lots of modalities that science can't explain. But it's also true that there's some modalities that science can, and those are fun too. Um, and so I think it's the combination for me of a spiritual practice, which is really a Buddhist practice, a spiritual practice, as well as sort of the, a more scientific grounding is, is really a lot of fun for me. I really enjoy that. The most important thing is there's no right way, right? Is that we each have our own path in awareness practice and I think oftentimes people are starting out think, especially this is the big one, they think that if their mind isn't quiet, they're not doing it right. Um, and that's totally not true. In fact, my mind is, after 30 years, is still not quiet when I meditate. Um, the, the piece that's important is about acceptance, really acceptance of your mind as it is. And that's often hard for people. But um, there really is no right way and don't get, sort of caught in this idea that you're not doing it right. Um, and different traditions are different. Some are more formal than others. Um, the, one I'm, the one I'm in, the sort of insight meditation um, um, lineage is um, one of the least formal ones. 
Um, but I still think that definitely matches. It's like, it's, it's internally our experience. It's really about accepting us and our experience as it is and being open to it and curious about it as it is. I want to actually say one thing about my transition because it's an important part of not only my healing process, but also what I offer to the world. Um, I had spent many, many, many years, I talked about therapy and, and such, sort of trying to come to terms with my body and with my myself as a woman. And for a long time, I felt like, well, this is the body I have. And so, um, you know, I'm going to do my best to love my body as it is. Um, and I hit a wall. Um, I just was, I was, I did pretty well for quite a while. And I hit a wall. And I realized that the wall was that I had never, that I was doing my best to accept my body, but I had never accepted that I had dysphoria. Um, and and that, that I sort of spent a lot of time sort of ignoring it or saying, well, it's not really, you know, I should ignore that feeling because I'm trying to, you know, get in touch with my body, you know, whatever, love my body as it is, but, you know. And so learning to actually embrace the dysphoria, learning to fully accept it, uh, learning to really hold it and with gentleness and kindness allowed me to realize, oh, I actually, there's something I can do about it. I don't actually have to just grit my teeth and live with it um, and, and live in pain with it. I was, I was in a lot of pain and also I was very shut down sexually. And so I really was unable to have a good erotic communication or connection with anyone. And so um, so coming to the point where I could really embrace it, it's like, ah, oh, here it is, meant that I could actually do something. And so that was why I decided to transition to take testosterone to, to have top surgery. Um, and that was the most, that was the best decision I've made in my life, I think, except for moving to California. That was number, that was number, you know, that was a big one. Um, but I think it's it's um, speaking of resilience and and sort of more uh, providing more options. It was like once I accepted this part of myself, which was a part of learning to love myself, was that oh yeah, I have this um, meant that the options opened up. It's like oh well, I can actually do something about it. I can change the way that I present in the world. I can decide to do something different. And that was huge for me. And learning to live as a man has been an interesting experience for sure, but it's the right one. It's like I finally figured out why being a lesbian never quite was home. It worked. It was sort of the closest approximation, but it never was quite home. Um, and, and now I understand why. And so, um, so that's a big piece of it for me. And so when I talk about resilience, um, resilience is, is really the ability of us to, um, in the face of whatever happens in our lives, um, to bounce back, to, to come back to a, a state of, of, of feeling okay about ourselves and our lives, 
um, to find the moments of pleasure and joy. I mean, it's, you know, it is really hard right now. I mean, it's, I mean, it's hard for everyone. And, and if you're in California, it's the West Coast, actually, entirely, it's really hard. And actually, if you're in Louisiana, it's hard, too. I mean, it's, it's just hard. It's the pandemic, it's politics, it's, it's the whole things that are happening um, with really dividing people. Um, it's racism. It's, I mean, it, it's just a really rough time. And, and so I was actually talking to somebody the other day about, you know, about where you find any pleasure and any joy and any happiness in a time that's so fraught. And I think we all have to do that. We all have to figure out what's the little bit of joy that I can find at this really hard time. Um, and it's, and I don't, I, I don't like, to, I think, I think some people often fall into this sort of like, um, I, I, it, it, sort of like this way of thinking. It's a sort of a new age way of thinking. It's like, you know, you, you create your own reality. And so if you think positive thoughts, that means your, you know, your reality is going to be better. Right. And I, that's bullshit. Right. I mean, I think that people don't create their own realities. Some people can because they have money. Right. But most people in our society can't actually create their own reality. And what they can do is they can approach their reality um, with awareness and with kindness toward themselves and with an understanding that um, if they are really able to embrace what's true about them, that they are a lovable, amazing human being, whoever they are and whatever's happening to them. And if they can find a way to embrace that lovable, amazing human being who's there, they can find they can see choices that they might not have seen otherwise. The choices open up for us that we that might be closed to us because we think we don't deserve it or we couldn't possibly do it or whatever it might be that we the, the message that we tell ourselves. Um, we can see choices that might not be there. And of course, different people have different choices, right? Some people have a lot more choices than other people. Um, and it's really important to understand that and embrace that because I think some ways of, of thinking about this stuff is so classist and so racist and so problematic. But, um, but it is true that if you love yourself, you can see more choices than you might not see otherwise. I would tell my younger selves of many ages just simply that she is lovable as she is um, and just sort of like say that over and over that she's lovable and that she can she should know that she is lovable and that I love her um, I think I mean when I was a kid I was a somewhat of a science nerd um, and um, and so I, I might actually like it would be kind of fun to like give my probably nine or ten or eleven year old, a really interesting sort of science lesson on what 2020 knows about gender. <laughs> um, that would be great. I, I, I think my, my, you know, my young self would enjoy that. Um, and also would teach that, that self that, um, you know, that there were more options open to her. I don't know that they would have been easy because it was not easy to transition in the seventies and eighties, um, at all. But, um, but I don't know, maybe, 
she would have seen how, oh, okay, maybe that's good to know, you know, and she would have enjoyed it because it would have been kind of cool stuff, right? Um, so I think those are the two things I'd want to tell my younger self. Thank you, Max, for stepping into the queer circle and sharing your journey with us. And thank you, listener, for coming along with us today. If you'd like to learn more about Max's work, visit transresilience.com or email him directly at max at transresilience.com. To find this information and more, please visit our website, queercirclepodcast.com. Music from today's episode was provided by Purple Fluoride. You can find this song and Purple Fluoride's other works anywhere streaming is available. Spotify, iTunes, and beyond. <laughs>